connected in covenant. So this morning we're going to push this into our national relationships. And so I want to say at the outset, this is probably the most difficult case to be made. And I'm not really going to make a, I'm not going to attempt to demonstrate or make a case that nations are or have been covenantal, because I think that that's not the case historically. Not every nation functions in a covenantal way. But what I I do want to hold out is uh, that the Bible would suggest to us that nations ought to form themselves, and the best way to form themselves would be in a covenantal format. And then I want to just maybe think together briefly about our own country and our relationship with our own nation and suggest that that this is this is what they had in mind, and that we do actually have a, a covenantal under or a covenantal relationship with one another. And then I think that we want to look at the implications of that and think about how we how we engage in civics. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna spend some time here, but I wanna I'm gonna try to save enough time to go back to last week and talk with some uh, work through some follow up instructions regarding the covenantal nature of the local church and answer some questions that came up last week and and particularly as we relate to other churches and and things like that in the community so that's that's the plan for this morning so israel is the primary biblical example of this covenantal nature between or amongst a national people I think it's pretty clear that nation that the nation of Israel was founded on a covenant. The whole book of Deuteronomy is a, is a book of covenant. It's ordered and structured like a suzerain vassal treaty, um, which was just a, a, a way that nations organized themselves in the ancient Near East. Um, this would have been a very common way of understanding for the Israelite people. And it's, uh, I believe it's the way the Lord chose to interact with his people, both in respect to the way he formed a, 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 a covenant with them, he being the Lord or suzerain, they being the vassal. But as an extension of that, that covenant bound them with one another as well. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And just we'll take a look at a few verses here to see, at least to show that I that their relationship was that they understood it to be covenantal. So if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and look at verse 9, therefore Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance just as the Lord your God spoke to him. Now, I want to point out two things from this passage. First, I want you to look at the terminology. What, what we've been trying to do is to show the terminology of covenant in the Scripture and that family language is, a coven, is, is covenant terminology. And well, that's what's here, right? Brothers. So your brothers, the Levites. So the, the nation of Israel saw the tribe of Israel not just as a biological brother, Levi being a brother of the, of, of, you know, the descendants of Jacob, but a brother in the sense of their connection with one another. But look at also, think also, this this points to the obligation of the nation to care for the the tribe, even though they wouldn't have an inheritance. So they were charged with caring for them. And that that duty to them is 
bound up in their relationship to them as brothers. And so it's a, it's a covenantal bond. So they would see themselves together, or at least they were supposed to see themselves together in that way. Turn to chapter 13. And let's look at verses 12 through 15. Moses wrote, If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known, then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. If it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. So I want you to think about the type of relationship that would be required for for a people of one community, one city, to be charged with and think that they would have this kind of duty and responsibility to another city. So what, what kind of relationship would we have with Grand Island if we were charged that if we heard here in Kearney that Grand Island, the people of Grand Island were, were turning away to idolatry, that we would feel it our duty to then go and do something about that. There has to be a connection here, right? That connection isn't just vertical. It is primarily vertical, but it's because of that vertical relationship, there's also a horizontal, covenantal connection. So the nation was to see itself this way. They were to see themselves as bound with one another in covenant. And that was a national reality. It wasn't just uh, familial. It was national. And then turn to chapter 15 and look at verse 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your, God, Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. So here again, there is this bond amongst the people, city to city, that would, that would charge them with the duty of benevolence toward their brothers. They saw themselves connected, bound together with one another. And again, this, this, is, um, this is a covenantal bond. So I just wanted to hold out Israel as the primary example of covenantal, a, a national covenantal bond. Now, I think that if you look to turn to Romans chapter 13, so there are clearly ideals held out for us in Scripture. There's we're challenged to obey Scripture regardless of whether the ideal is there, but you have these ideals held out. Romans 13 is a good example. <clears throat> Romans 13, beginning of verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, 
and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is the minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render all that is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Uh, It's a little not as explicit here, but I think there are some implications of the type of bond that the Lord is pressing on us in terms of the way we think about our governing authorities. Now, clearly, the Lord is the one, he's saying he's he's the one who establishes authority. So governmental authority is established by God. Right, but it's established with a particular purpose in mind. What's the purpose that that Paul says? What is the purpose of government? To do what is good, right? To do what is good, punish the evil, right? So, do you see here what the Lord is doing? Is he's he's saying, I have established governmental authority, but I've charged that governmental authority with duty, right? Who's that duty oriented toward? God and and the people, right? So there is this vertical duty. They have it. They're they're the servants, or it, literally they're the deacons of the Lord. But the duty that the Lord is charging them with is to press itself out in horizontal relationship, right? So our governing authorities ought to see themselves having been designated as those who have a duty toward their people, right? Well, where does duty come from? So you can have duty in relationship, but duty biblically comes from covenant. It comes from being bound together in a covenantal union. And so this just suggests, it implies that the ideal for government would be that there would be this covenantal way of thinking between governing authorities and between those who subject, who submit themselves to them. Now, look at it from that end. We're commanded to submit to our governing authorities, right? Doesn't that sound like children obey your parents and and wives submit to your husbands? And those relationships are covenantal. So if we think of our duty to our nation, we ought to be thinking the ideal for this is a covenantal way of thinking where we're bound to one another with mutual duties. The government having duty to us, we having duty to them. Just as the leaders of a church, the church itself who are represented by the leaders, has covenantal duty to the people, and the people have covenantal duty to the leaders, or to the church, right? goes back and forth. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, where we see something similar. And let's look at verses 13 through 15. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave 
of God. And he goes on, honor all people, honor the brotherhood, from God honor the king, etc. So this relationship that's set up is very similar. The, the, the language here is very similar to Romans 13. The Lord has established governing authorities. Governing authorities have been given to the people as servants of God. They are, they are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of what is right. Wouldn't it be awesome if that were the case, right? I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if our, I mean, part of the, the challenge we face in our current national circumstance is that the government has lost sight of its duty and has lost sight of the, the charge that God has given to it. And part of that, in large measure, in fact, maybe at the core of that, is that we've turned away from God as the source of moral understanding, right? So we don't believe there is a God, so we don't have a moral foundation. Therefore, what do we uphold, right? Yeah, the state God. God becomes the state, and it becomes its own source of law. Um, but there, there is this duty here. We're, we're to act as freemen, but we're not to use our freedom as a, a way of dishonoring the Lord to cover evil, but as slaves of God, we are to respond. So our relationship to him binds us to our nation which gives us duties and obligations and responsibilities. The problem, I think, well, let's, let's push into this a little bit more. So relationships formed by covenant form the strongest bonds and suggest the best model, right? So if you think about the difference, we, we spent time talking about the difference between contract and covenant and, and pointing out that contracts, by, by their very nature, will become self-centered, Covenants bind people in relationship. And so covenants are actually the better form of forming bonds with one another. So what I'm suggesting is that governments organized well ought to order themselves as a covenantal type of structure. They have to bind one another covenantally. And so that's because they, that, that's what's going to form the strongest bond. Covenants bind people to one another relationally and not merely for personal benefit right? Contracts are oriented toward the benefit I get from it. Covenants are oriented toward a relationship. So, but you notice how our, and and we can pick on our government, right? But our government's just a reflection of us as a people, right? Let's face it. We elect our governing officials. They they represent us and, and they do. They represent the underlying mentality of our people. And we're a self-centered people. We want what we want. And so we elect people who, like us, want what they want. But it becomes very contractual. It becomes very self-centered. We're not bound to one another relationally anymore. I've just been astounded um, how people can observe uh, horrible crime being uh, committed and not even take a second glance at what's going on around them. I'm trying to remember, I saw a video where a woman, um, I I think I mentioned a woman going down the stairs, but there was another one here just recently. There was another woman walking down the street. Oh, no, it was in a school. That's what it was. There was a a student that attacked a para in the hall. And if you look at that, there's a woman walking by, and this student comes out and tackles her. And it's like this woman doesn't even know what's happening. She just keeps walking by and 
this is, this is a devaluation of human life that really is because we've become self-centered. We've turned in on ourselves. We've turned away from looking outward and being servants of, and, and, and being in bond with one another. Covenants help achieve that if we rightly think about them. And then covenants place duties upon leaders that are related to protection and provision and that mitigate self-serving leadership, right? So if and this applies in every instance of covenant where, there, where there's a representative, representative leader, so they take the church, the representative leaders of a church, if understood correctly, covenant, and me, uh, me as a pastor thinking of it that way, charges me with protection and provision and, and moves me away from thinking in a manner that is self-serving, but rather turns me outward, right? And so covenants have this uh, blessing and then covenants place duties upon the citizens that promote unity and mutual care and that prevent selfishness. They, 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 they give us appropriate duty and charge us with looking outward and thinking about the good of my neighbor, the good of my nation. Now, it's not wrong. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I would... You, you're hearing a lot about Christian nationalism today. And one of the the things that's really um, grievous to me is the way that Christian nationalism and the argument against it, and even by those within the church arguing against Christian nationalism, is is actually going way too far. There's elements of, of Christian nationalism that are wrong. So if you see a sign that says, God, guns, and Trump, right? Those, two, those three things don't go together, right? We ought not to be thinking that way. But, but to paint Christian nationalism strictly as that kind of mentality and to throw everything out is to throw out something essential that the Lord wants from us. The Lord formed nations. He forms nations. He dispersed the peoples and formed nations. This is his current intention for us, and so it is not wrong for us to be thinking in terms of a nation that has borders. That's not wrong. And it's not wrong for us to have laws. It's not wrong for us to be bound together in a covenant commitment that is oriented toward itself. But it's no different than the family, right? The family ought not to function in a manner that is to the, uh, to the demise of or the detriment of every family around them. That would be wrong, right? That would be selfish as a group. We are to, to love this family God has given us, but also to love our neighbors and seek to do good. So um, there's nothing wrong with citizenry as long as it's oriented in the right way. Yeah, I think there's, there's, so there's some good thinking in this Christian nationalism movement on the, on the, those who promote it. There's some healthy thinking in as, in as much as it's seeking to bring us back to this covenantal bond, in as much as it's trying to draw us back to a biblical understanding of Christianity. The problem is that there's some mixed up in that. It's like everything. There gets some other stuff that's, that goes too far the other direction.
Yeah. Yeah, so our um so let's think of it let's put it in the context of the family, right? So in a in a, let me I'm I'm going to speak nationally in, in reference to the family but you, you understand I'm not this isn't the way I really think. So let's think of you're a citizen of your home, right? So we're a citizen of the Larson household. Um is that citizenship important? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it doesn't ever trump or overcome or, or take priority over my citizenship in the kingdom, right? But those two things, what we want to do is we want to like create this false dichotomy where you have to have one or the other. You can't have both. And the scriptures say, no, you can have both. In fact, you're supposed to have both. Love family and love the Lord. Well, love the Lord and love your family. Love the Lord and love your country. Exactly. Right. Yes, so people will form together. They will come together in tribes or nations. What do we want for those people when they come together? We want them to be thinking biblically. We want them to be thinking covenantally. We want them to be Christian. And so there's, those two things shouldn't be pulled apart from one another, although we do pull them apart. So I would argue that the I don't I wouldn't argue necessarily that our founding fathers had covenantal thinking foremost in their mind, but because what undergirded much of the thought regarding the formation of our nation was biblical, you can't get away from a covenantal way of thinking. And so as a result, the way our country was formed and even the way we function now has covenant all over it. Right? So let's think of this. Citizenship is granted in the United States. Like most countries, citizenship is granted on the basis of birth and automatically obligates individuals to share duties, right? You're born into the nation. You've become by birth a citizen. And as a result, though, you automatically have duties given to you, like the military service obligation, MSO. Anybody know what the military service obligation is, by the way? It, it's related to the draft, but but not it's not that exclusively. Who do, first of all, who does the military service obligation apply to? Men only, and 18 years of age and older, right? Men who are 18 years of age or older have a military service obligation. What is that obligation? Six years. Six years. You have a, every male, 18 years of old, age of older, has a military service obligation of six years. And you can fulfill that in one of three ways. You can fulfill that by living out your life and never being called up. You can fulfill that by being called up and serving. Or you can fulfill that by volunteering and serving. So in the, if you join the service, you will automatically be given a six-year commitment. Now, you think, well, wait a minute, most people only serve four. Well, they serve four actively, and they serve two inactively. The the general, because the obligation used to be four, but now it's six. Did you know that? You have that obligation. This is why the selective service requires eight men, 18 years of age, to register. 
That's where the draft comes in. It's related to this military service obligation. By the way, our nation is trying to add this service obligation to women. We ought to oppose this, by the way. That's a whole other subject, but we ought to oppose that. Um, any nation that sends its women out to war, is, um, it doesn't deserve to win the war. All right, jury duty. Do you have an obligation to jury duty? You do. Where did that obligation come from? By virtue of your citizenship, right? That's a covenantal duty that you have to your nation and to your community. And then government representatives take an oath of office, right? And that oath charges them with duties, and that oath is taken with witnesses, right? Well, why? Because it's covenantal in its nature, right? You have to have witnesses, similar to a wedding, where you have witnesses taking vows. Well, then when someone is naturalized and they become a citizen, they have to go through a process for that, but you can be naturalized, and, and look at the oath that they take. I hereby declare on oath, oath, that's not covenant, that's not contractual language, oaths. I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty. By the way, that's not contractual language. That's turning away from, that's a forsaking, Right? of whom or, or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when, regarded by the, where, when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. Interesting that we have so help me God in a godless nation, right? So this oath that's taken for citizenship declares duty, right? It declares allegiance and fidelity and it states duty. Um. Let's see, where is that that statement? Oh, there's, there's, it's just distinguishing different types of service in the military service. So you can have a combatant, you can be called up into like the infantry, but then you can also do non-combatant service. So in other words, you're, you don't, you're not actually fighting. Yeah, water purification. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't want to get into a discussion about the, our national laws in this regard. My, my only point here is to show that the relationship that we have with our nation and consequently to one another is of a covenantal form. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so Holiday was saying we have obligations and duties, but we also have privileges of protection. So it goes both ways, right? The, the country itself, so think of the church, but then the church has designated and appointed leaders, right? The church has authority, but it has appointed and designated leaders. 
The government has authority and has appointed and designated leaders. So those leaders represent the nation. And so those leaders, as representatives of the nation, have a duty to protect and to provide for the nation, right? Just as a father has a duty to protect and to provide a family. Right. Exactly. And that that pushes into our bond with one another. Because we're in this type of a relationship, I am I ought to feel a sense of devotion to my nation such that when in when in conflict would be willing to serve in some way whether that's in a combatant role or in a non-combatant role or as a civil servant in some way, I ought to feel that obligation because I am in covenant with this people. You're my brother and sister, nationally speaking. And it's not wrong to think that way. This is, I believe, the way the Scriptures hold out for the best way for nations to function. Again, not not all nations function this way. There are many horrible uh, relationships between leaders and people throughout world's history and even today. But I believe this is the best way to form a nation. And I think it's, whether, whether intentionally or inadvertently, it's what our founding fathers put out for us. So that means that when you get that summons for jury duty, you, you ought not to complain. You ought not to, to go, oh, I can't believe this. You ought to recognize that that summons to jury duty has along with it this other relationship of protection and provision from your leaders and the bond that you have with one another. And it's your service to your community. So this, if we think this way, it, it really fundamentally shifts our thinking toward the, the community we live in and toward our nation. We have to love our nation. But now, those who love speak the truth in love, right? And so the love of our nation, the problem with some that go too far on Christian nationalism can never say anything against their nation. They can never say anything against. Well, that's not love. Love speaks truth. And so out of love for our nation, we ought to speak out when she is doing wrong. Right? Because we love her. And because we have a duty and a bond to her. And so it would be wrong for us to sit back and just say, oh, I have no stake in this. I can just let them do whatever. No, we're in bond with one another, and we have duties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, so is the question, how would we respond to those who are becoming separatists politically? They're, they're taking a group, right, extreme Tea Party um, groups that, that intentionally separate themselves away, move out into the, in the desert and create their own communes and communities. 
Yeah, I think that I think that we 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 do call them back to the concept of covenant out of Romans 13, 1 Peter, and go beyond just the matter of of where where we can kind of flatten that text and call them to what that text text implies in 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 regard to the the nature of our relationship and call them to love their brothers, call them to love their community and to stop being selfish. Now, there, there are times when one must forsake, right? But, but those ought to be judiciously thought through, and it ought to be under the leadership of godly people who are, who are seeking to. So I've been asked, so is, was the American Revolution wrong? It's, a, it's more of a conversation than we want to have here, but let me just throw out a suggestion to you. The church has long held a doctrine of the lesser magistrate. The scriptures hold your representatives accountable. So take our city. Let me, let me press it here to Kearney. Let's assume that the um, state of Nebraska implemented a law requiring all jurisdictions within the state to crack down on churches and to... to disband them, and, and no longer allow churches to meet. Okay, what ought Mayor Klaus, Stan Klaus, to do? Huh? Call the sheriff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Mayor Klaus ought to say to the governor, respect you, won't do it. Will not do it. And the, the Scriptures actually hold government authorities responsible for not standing in the gap between higher authorities who are exercising tyranny to their through down to the lowest constituent. Those lesser magistrates have a duty. Mayor Klaus has a duty to Kearney. And that duty is to uphold what is right and good and to stand against a tyrannical government where necessary. Yeah, the only reason I would say that is because the city and the county legally don't connect. So he, Klaus doesn't have any uh, duty or he doesn't have any um, authority over the sheriff. The sheriff himself ought to stand up and say, no, we're not doing that. And then maybe they could work together, partner up and say, no, we're not working together. Or we are working together. Yeah. That's right. Yes. And there, were, there was much outcry against that, but they were functioning biblically. They were functioning in a manner that the Lord would say, yes, you ought to stand up on behalf of the people whom you've covenanted with to say, I'm responsible for you, and oppose that which is wrong. By the way, we push this, no, no, no doubt we push this into the military. Are you, is a, is a, is a, an infantry soldier, um, by law, required to follow the orders of a superior officer? Yes. Is that is that absolute? Okay, wonder what conditions is that non-absolute? If he is given an unlawful order, right? Uh, are you familiar with the Mile High Massacre? So Vietnam, Lieutenant... Huh? Callie? Yeah, Lieutenant Callie carried out an order and massacred a, a, a village, and his argument was, I was following orders... And he was 
con- he was convicted and court-martialed because they were saying, no, the, Lord, the, the order was unlawful. You ought not to have done that. So our own government recognizes that there are times to say, no, I won't do that. Now, again, it comes back to um, what we would do. Um, we, we then would have a conscious decision to make in terms of whether we join with that lesser magistrate or not. But it, I don't think that, that question is a clear, no, you can't. And so when you come back to our nation's founding, you had governmental officials standing up against a tyrannical authority as lesser magistrates, and for those who joined with them, there is an argument to be made that it wasn't wrong for them to join with them in standing against a tyrannical government. They were functioning as lesser magistrates. Yeah. Yeah, I would not, and I would, I would not, on the basis of that, um, we have a system for elected representatives, and we we have it's like a, a church. You have a system for elected representatives. You have a process, and so I'm not suggesting. I think individuals may may. Yeah, it's it's a. Let's just suffice it to say this, because we're getting off topic. Let's suffice it to say this. There's lots of wisdom needed in these things, and we can talk those things through. I think the scriptures don't leave us without witness in this arena, but but I think we ought to be very loath, very 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 loath, to rebel against governing authorities. That ought to be something that we look at and say, no, the scriptures tell us to submit. And, and it is only in extreme and very clear circumstances where we don't submit. Yeah, same thing for the family. All the covenantal relationships where there's authority given. Church, family, all of these. My point this morning is really just to draw out the implications that we, we have, we're in covenant union with our people, with our community, with our nation. We have obligations up and down. We ought to live that way. Okay, let's shift gears here and go back to last week and discuss some follow-up instructions regarding the covenantal nature of the local church. Some questions came up as a result. I was making the case that our relationships with one another are covenantal, but I think it would be helpful to look at some foundational beliefs or premises regarding the local church. So there's some beliefs or premises that, that I'm operating on. I, I, can't, I think I can speak for Roger and say we're, we're together on this. We're operating on some fundamental principles or premises here. Number one, the Lord has not left us without instruction in respect to the nature of the local church relationships and to the ordering of the local church. It's not as though we just get to do whatever we want when it comes to the local church. It's not as though we just say, oh, well, there's the universal church, and as far as the local church is concerned, hey, do whatever. Right? The Lord has given us instruction here. He didn't leave us without instruction. And so... uh, 1 Timothy, the whole book, right? 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, giving Timothy instructions in reference to the function of the church. And he has in mind the local church. He doesn't have in mind the universal church. Chapter 3, what's chapter 3 of Timothy? Anyone, 1 Timothy, anyone know what's, what's the primary focus of that chapter? 
Right. Qualifications for officers. Officers of what? The local church. It can't be anything other than that, right? This isn't officers. We're not appointing elders to the universal church, right? That wouldn't make sense. We're appointing elders in the churches. And by the way, Titus 1, Paul tells Titus, listen, I'm leaving you on the island of Crete in order to set things in order and to do what? Appoint elders in all of the churches, right? So there's this leadership structure in each individual church. And 1 Timothy 3 gives us instruction in respect to that. Chapter 5 talks about not bringing an accusation against an elder without a proper without a proper procedure and how you treat those who uh, are your elders, those who rule well, those who focus on preaching and teaching. There's instruction there for us in reference to the local church. So Titus gives us instruction, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, where Peter is saying, I, as a fellow elder, exhort you, the elders, shepherd the flock of God. I mean, shepherd like, like the whole flock? Or the flock. In that passage, if you go there, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you to look real quickly. It's something Peter says I think is really helpful. So he's exhorting them to shepherd the flock among you. Look at verse 3. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. Do you suppose Peter had in mind that to every shepherd they were allotted everybody? No, I mean, that doesn't make sense at all. And yeah, like Roger said, hope not. No, there's an allotment, right? There is, so my point here is that the Scriptures give us instruction in terms of what the local church is and how the local church is ordered. We're not just, we don't just get to make it up. Matthew 18 gives instruction about how the church disciplines. Um, Romans 12, Romans, and 1 Corinthians 12 talk about the the bond of the way we interact with one another, use of gifts and things like this. So the scriptures don't leave us without witness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Zach's question is why is this so difficult for us or why is it like unknown and 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 pushed against and why do you, like if you bring it up with a friend and they look at you like what are you talking about and then how do we deepen our understanding or or submit submission to these things? I I'm, I think that the issue for us It's the issue that's been the case since the garden. It's a desire for autonomy and a rejection against authority. So if you look at the family, why do kids, why are they more likely to rebel against mom and dad than against a neighbor? Right? Do you ever notice that? Little children have a tendency to buck mom or dad far more than they're going to buck the neighbor. Right? Why? Well, because there's an authority there. And we don't, our flesh hates authority. And so there is this rebelliousness in the heart of man that rejects. And so the universal church is actually a covering. The idea of that we function only in the universal church, I believe, is a covering for 
us to be able to do what we want. Ain't nobody the boss of me. I think the way we understand this is we've, we've got to start with stopping this way of looking at authority as a negative. And, and to see God as Lord and King as a good thing. And, and to see that the structures that he's given to us for covenantal relationship and the authorities that he's given us are a good thing. And to celebrate that in our hearts and to meditate on that and to think about that. And then I think what we've been doing in terms of trying to reinforce this idea of covenant and deepening our understanding of that our, on our own will help. And then speaking that way and, and, and helping people to think covenantally and pointing them to covenant. Let's come back to that, Michael. If I don't answer that question sufficiently as we move on, let me come back to that, okay? Because that's a really good question. The question is, in the age of, in the internet, with YouTube and with superstar pastors, how do you, how do you carefully listen without coming under too much under authority of a, of a pastor from the universal church? All right, so um, point two, local churches are responsible for the protection and propagation of pure doctrine. This is an underlying fundamental premise. So the whole book of Galatians, who's Galatians written to? The churches in Galatia. Is it written to the leaders? Or is it written to the people? The people. It's written to the people. Is it, there's no, they're like in, there are places where it says to the elders and, you know, like I think it's Philippians. But, but here it's, it's written to the churches of Galatia and he's saying, listen, you've allowed false doctrine. He's holding them accountable for not having stood up against false doctrine in the church, right? He sees the local church as responsible to protect and to propagate true doctrine. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So in this book, 1 Timothy, which lays out for us much about the local church and its responsibilities... He says in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3 to Timothy, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar in support of the truth, and Paul charges the local church as a part of that pillar in support of the truth. And he gives instruction to say, this is how you do this. This is following on the heels of the appointment of appropriate leaders, and among them being those who are able to teach. Or as he says to Titus, able to defend sound doctrine. The church is charged with protecting and propagating sound doctrine. Paul says again and again, prescribe and teach these things, prescribe and teach these things, prescribe and teach these things. Well, which things? Apostolic gospel, right? And then third, the local church, the local church, that should be is, I had that plural before, local church is responsible for doctrinal formation and shepherding care of members. Local church churches are the Lord's primary instrument for the spiritual formation of believers. Now, this is really important 
the local church is the primary instrument that the Lord uses to form the church and to form believers. 1 Peter chapter 5, again, shepherd them and those who are allotted to your charge, your allotment, your people. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them as those who have charge over your souls and do this uh, as a way not to give them grief. That'll be a joy to you. That'll be to your benefit. They have charge over your souls to bring about formation spiritually. Uh, Titus, turn to Titus. This is, a, this is a, a statement that maybe pushes Zach into why we, we don't like these ideas of local church the way we're talking about it. Because you read, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you, Timothy. In other words, Timothy, you have been vested with authority that, that means something in, in its context within the local church. Let no one disregard you. It's akin to Hebrews 13, 17. Now, obviously, this means this puts tremendous responsibility and duty on the church leaders, right? To not lord it over, to be faithful, to, to love the sheep. to And there's plenty of exhortation along those regards. But it goes both ways. So the local church is responsible for doctrinal formation and for the shepherding care of its members. So what are some implications that flow out from these statements then well evangelism that does not connect converts to a local church will be anemic at best because it communicates that a person can be united to christ without being united to his body it fails to offer the whole christ to the believer to suggest that you can come to faith and never be a member of a local church is to suggest that Christ is divided somehow. That you don't have to participate in His body, you can be in union with Him. Is Christ divided? He cannot be. It is wrong to evangelize in a manner that disconnects it from the local church. And this is why baptism, we come back to baptism, why baptism is so important in the local church. So, Evangelism done by, I'm going to potentially get myself in trouble here, done by parachurch ministries that is disconnected from the local church is an anemic evangelism. It leaves people outside of that which the Lord intended to form them. If the local church is the primary instrument for the formation, to suggest that someone can be faithful as a follower of Christ outside of that local church, who's forming them? Yeah, I think that's a good question. We've gotten so more obsessed with converts than disciples. I think we are very much oriented in our nation to the productivity, the results-oriented way of thinking that looks to numbers and converts and people coming in and so... It, should be, it, it does tend to become a matter of, look, we've won all of these people and we're focused on that and, and really disconnecting that from the whole of 
their salvation. Yeah, well, I, the question is, how do you, since the parachurch ministry has been around for a long time, um, how do you not sound like a flat earther and not up with the times? Well, I would just, I'd say two things. Number one, I would say um, the last century is not a long time in reference to the history of the church, right? Um, I, I would argue that if we want to talk about time, it's on my side, right? 1,800, 1,900 years compared to maybe a hundred. Um, number two, I'd just take them to the Bible. So let's just go to the scriptures and let's let's look at what the scriptures have to say. We need to we need to move on. Let me let me can you throw up Eric, can you throw up that? So here are three small group models for help in considering universal or versus local church and how we think about this and what we were just talking about. So you have church Bible studies, right? So the church oversees these studies. This is the model we seek to practice here. So all of those men are holding out the scriptures under the authority of their local church, right? That, that all makes sense to us, right? No questions here. Okay, so the church is responsible for doctrinal oversight, right? Uh, study content aligns with church confessions, right? So what we're doing in those small groups aligns with what the church itself confesses, right? The church ensures leaders are qualified, right? So all those leaders, they're being assured to be qualified by the church, and leaders are accountable to the church, right? All make sense? Okay, so here's another model. Independent community Bible study. You see what's going on here? You have an individual or individuals who are leading a small group, and those people who are participating in that are a part of all kinds of different churches with different confessions. Here's some questions for you. Who's responsible for doctrinal oversight in this model? Who really? Who is the Bible study leader? Right. What ensures leaders are qualified, or who ensures that they're qualified? They do. To whom is the leader accountable? Yeah, I mean, he's like that's what he'll say. But. But the scriptures, if that's true, the scriptures hold out to us an accountability structure and appoint the church. Are the elders of each church accountable for what their members are being taught? Okay, that's true, right? We here at Cornerstone, if we're one of these churches, are we not responsible for what you're being taught? How do I manage that as a leader in this model? How do I know What's being taught here? And is it, my, is it really right that the pastors ought to go and seek out every independent Bible study and make sure that all of the instruction is right and good so that their people can attend? Is that what the Lord intends for us? Here's another one, church-sponsored community Bible study. Yeah, but it's the leader's under the, under the authority of a church, right? So he's, he's under the authority of the church, but it's a community Bible study. Well... What happens when teachings do not align? And they won't, right? Because that church that's in charge is different from all those other churches. So let's assume that the church in charge, this one, 
is uh, they believe that baptism is required for salvation. Will they teach that in their Bible studies? What if this church or this church doesn't agree with that? How do you align those things? To whom should the participants listen? Should those participants listen to their church or should they listen to this leader? Particularly when there's conflict. Who is responsible for the care of study participants? So there's all kinds of people in this study, right? Who's responsible for their care? Who's responsible to shepherd them? Is it him or is it the elders? of those churches. I think this is just a visual to help us understand the primacy of the local church and why the local church has to sit as this authority. There's nothing wrong with getting together with friends, praying together and and studying the scriptures together, but to have community-organized studies, it's it's commendable on one end. It's, It's trying to hold out to us, listen, we're all united in one faith. We all have this one thing, but it's not biblical. Multiple questions here. It can be an indictment on the local church if they're not providing what those people need, but it's not always an indictment because our culture is immersed in an ideology that says that this is okay. So you may have a very healthy church providing but the mentality of those participating is, to, is it's distorted. It's commendable on one end, but it's distorted on another. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. The question is, how does this work when somebody from another church is seeking counsel and we provide that counsel. Our goal is to, to work with that other church, to make sure that that person is under the authority of that church, that we're working with them, and then our goal is to get them back to that other church and get them connected to that other church. Now, we, we in our counseling model, we're going to counsel first within, then we're going to counsel the unchurched, and then at a, as a last kind of tr- priority, we may counsel outside, but it's it's really something that... Hopefully we don't do for long, but we equip other churches to take care of it themselves. But we do it in conjunction with those other churches. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Let me answer it in two ways. Number one, let me answer the the just the <laughs> my authority is not what other people think of me. Right. I ought not to be governed by a love of man such that what governs me 
is how I might be perceived or how how we might be perceived. So that really pushes me back to, is this biblical? Am I being faithful? Are we being faithful? Now, again, I want to reiterate, I am not arguing that we don't have fellowship with other believers. I'm not arguing that we don't get together, pray together, sing together, and do things together. But what I am arguing is that when there is some structure of authority, a Bible study, for example, which inherently carries authority with it, because at least it ought to, a Bible study ought to be saying, you ought. Here's what the Scriptures teach. And if it's not doing that, I don't know. That's not a Bible study, right? So we're talking about authority. And in that case, your local church is the one that has authority. The authority is granted by Christ to the local church, and we ought to come under that. By all means, fellowship with other believers. By all means, pray and sing together and and celebrate um, each other. But when it comes to authority, let's function biblically. Yeah, evangelism ought to be pointing back a person back to the local church. Real quickly, yeah. Yeah, this very independent, autonomous way of thinking, even when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture, where I am the sole arbiter as to what the Scriptures mean, outside of even what the Scriptures say to me about how that is how that is assessed. So we don't have time, unfortunately. Um, yeah, we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the local church. But we do celebrate the concept of universal church, and we anticipate that day when we will be united together as one people of everywhere and for all time. Lord, we look forward to that celebration that will be beautiful and rich and where we'll have eternity to to get to know one another. But Lord, we also want to thank you for the organization of the local church and for the, the, the teaching that you've given us to help us understand these things. Lord, help us not to be arrogant and prideful in reference to our church but help us to be faithful to what your scriptures teach us and to stand firm in understanding those things and believing and following you. Lord, help us to be uh, tender and kind and, and uh, welcoming to all while at the same time loving the family that you've given to us and being devoted to one another. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.